Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch's sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee, plus 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com code odyssey. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Adrian Bain. And I realized in that moment that I am not into BDSM because I don't like the feeling of being horny and horrified at the same time. (laughs) That and more. But before that, no one has time to go to the post office anymore. You know, the traffic, the lines, it's a hassle. That's why you need Stamps.com. It's one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. post office right to your computer. Whether you're a small office sending invoices or an online seller shipping out products or a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle all of that with ease. You just use your computer to print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail. Once your mail's ready to send, just hand it to the mail carrier. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get five cents off every first-class stamp and up to 40% off priority mail. Not to mention it's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. No wonder over 700,000 small businesses already use Stamps.com. We've been using it at Risk and the Story Studio for many years now, and we've always loved it. And right now, our listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show.
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Galactic behind me now. We are calling this week's episode Adulting. <clears throat> oh, couldn't even get it out of my mouth. Adulting. <laughs> it's a stupid word. It's one of those words that's really fucking annoying. But you know what? So is being an adult. I couldn't bring that out of my mouth either. Clearly, clearly Dr. Jung would notice that I have some sort of block around uh, being an adult. But all three of today's storytellers made made it over that hump. (laughs) Now, in a little bit, we are going to hear from Tyson Robert, a story that he recorded with us when Risk was last in Milwaukee. He really poured his heart and soul into it, and it really showed. But before that, a story by Adrienne Bain, who is... She has her own podcast called Strangers Abroad, and you can look it up at strangersabroadpodcast.com. Now, I'm calling this story There Will Be Blood, and you can consider that title a sort of hint about the contents of the story. Here she is now. This is Adrian Bain at the last Risk Live show that we did in New York City with a story we call There Will Be Blood. guys um i have a question for the uterus owners in the room um have you ever felt so lonely that you thought your cop or ud was your best friend no i'm not alone on that one too okay that's fine uh okay so i when i was 25 i moved to new york and i was guessed it lonely uh this is a hard city and i didn't really know what i was doing at the time I had a few friends here, but I I was working at like a jewelry shop and I had this little passion project. It was a podcast I was working on. It's called Strangers Abroad. You can download it on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And so I didn't know, (laughs) I didn't know what I was doing with it at the time. Um, But I had a few friends here and about a month or two into moving here, we went out to a party in Williamsburg and that was the first time that I heard Jose's voice it was like this deep rumbling like like hearing a thunderstorm off in the distance and he had this very like 90s Alec Baldwin vibe and I was like I want to go talk to that so we go up to each other and we start talking and he just has like I'm very sensitive to voices hence like the podcast and he just has this voice where he could read the encyclopedia to me and I am wet by Albuquerque like (laughs) I was into it. And so he, you know, we start chatting and he used to be an editor of a magazine and we're into psychology and writing and all these things. I'm like, oh my God, this guy is amazing. And by the time that the party is over and we are the last ones out, I knew what our wedding cake would be. (laughs) It was going to be chocolate with a white frosting and raspberry. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Um, So... 
you know, we go out on a few dates for like a month or so. And I think we hook up once and every date is just like awesome. And we're really, really getting along with each other. And it's just like such good chemistry. And we go out to the movies one night and then we go back to his place and he, he sits me down and he's like, hey, I need to I need to tell you something. I'm like 15 years older than you and I think we should be platonic. And I was like, oh, the pain of that, that disappointment fortunately distracted me from calculating the age difference between him and my father. Um, but before I could like really think about it too much he was like but you know I just I'm kind of looking for a woman who's like a little bit older and like wanting to settle down sooner and you're a millennial and um and which isn't wrong so he's like but you know I think we do have like such good you know chemistry together and I, I want to keep hanging out and you know we both are writers you know you could help me with my stuff I could kind of mentor you and I could help you with your podcast and I was like okay yeah I'll settle for that like that's okay yeah that's cool um, not what I wanted, but okay, that's cool. So our relationship started evolving in really interesting ways where, you know, we would spend the afternoons working on his stuff because, like, he had real deadlines. And by the time we would get to my podcast, we'd both be pretty tired. So we would go to his little apartment in Brooklyn and we would, like, take a break and we'd get in his bed and we would Netflix and that's it, just Netflix. <laughs> And I would fall asleep and we would kind of have these platonic sleepovers and we would wake up the next morning, not spooning, but like cusping each other, like feeling like a lot of back of the knee heat. And we would kind of fall into the rituals that you do when you are, you know, when you wake up with a lover, we would talk about our dreams and maybe do funny voices and get dressed and we, you know we would often go out to cafes and like start working on our writing and stuff and there was this one day where we were doing a little banter with the barista because we just liked flirting with people and she was like you guys are so cute and he goes oh she's not my girlfriend which is which is not what I wanted to hear at the time. But I knew that Rome wasn't built in a day. And, and <laughs> you know, I would just have to be a little bit more patient. So I started doing more. Like taking his mail out for him or cleaning his room. Or being just like an overall emotional atlas for like 40 plus years of issues. But my real friends at the time were like, what the fuck are you doing cleaning a 40-something-year-old's apartment and he's not eating your pussy out? Like, what is going on? I was like, well, yeah, I can't really, but I just, I had this dream I just I that we would have this little writer's cove in the Hudson Valley and we would make omelets every morning with our chickens like I wanted that I really wanted that until one day 
I go over to his apartment and we're going to work on like a video for one of his writing courses. I step into his apartment. He's got a roommate and it's, you know, I step into the living room dash kitchen dash yoga studio dash writing studio dash whatever because we live in closets in New York and his bedroom is like attached to it and it's just really one giant room with a little divider and his roommate's room is too though right and um, we're supposed to film a video so I had written a script and he takes a look at it tosses it aside and starts to think that he's Wayne Brady from Whose Line Is It Anyway and just starts improving. and it's so bad it's so bad and we're doing like take after take after take and I'm like no amount of UCB classes can fix you <laughs> And he can tell that I'm getting a little tense. You know, that I'm like, oh my God. So he's like, okay, uh, you know, I heard about this one little trick where since we're only being videotaped from like the shoulders up, what if we, uh, what if we just took our pants off just to like play, just to like ease tensions? <laughs> and I'm like, I see what the trick is. <laughs> but like, yeah, I'm going to take my pants off. So I take my pants off, and we're sitting on the couch. Thigh's not touching, but again, like a lot of thigh heat. And we do we do a take, and it works. It, like, actually works. We only have to do it one more time. I was like, great, this is done. This is over with. I'm done with this. Let's reward ourselves. Let's watch some Rick and Morty. So I get up. I'm disappointed I didn't wear cuter underwear, and I turn the lights off. And I sit back down next to him, and we start watching. And now, just a... Side note, I'm not like a super traditional girl. Like, I don't need chocolates or flowers. But a kiss would be nice before you start finger blasting me. And all of a sudden, he's just like, hand, hand, hand. Like, no seduction whatsoever. But I'm like, well, okay, it's happening. Like, it's happening. I'm not going to be upset about this. So he scoops me up. He throws me to the bed. We And it's just like... He, we're just like two squirrels running up a tree together. We're just like, it's four months of sexual tension. And so finally, after about like, after about like 15 minutes, he gets this weird like panic, like, oh God, I didn't lock the door. Can you just get up and, and lock the doors just in case my roommate? And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's totally fine. So I, I get up, I flick on the lights. I look back at my conquest and I've never seen so much blood. <laughs> I have never seen so much like you know the scene from The Shining <laughs> where the doors open and it's just a river like it looks like we had and he jumps up and I don't know if you've ever seen like a lot of blood on a living body before but it's horrifying like it looks like a haunted house should have hired him to just be a naked man running around covered in blood like it was so oh my god it was so scary so he jumps up we look at each other and then we look at our own bodies and then we look at the bed and then we look at her and and he's not screaming and I'm not in pain so (laughs) and I realized in that moment that I am not into BDSM because I don't like the feeling of being horny and horrified at the same time So, after a minute, he breaks the silence and he goes, 
I'm gonna take a shower. <laughs> I was like, okay. So he goes into the bathroom. He turns the shower on. And I look at it, and I'm like, it's not, it doesn't look like, because I'm not early. And he screams. And he shouts from the bathroom, your copper IUD. lacerated my penis my cobra IUD was setting the boundaries that I wasn't able to do my cobra IUD was not having his nonsense she was like a lady praying mantis decapitating her lover's post coitus she was being the best friend that I needed because she was preventing me from making all the bad decisions with men that not even my real friends could do. She was not having it. But me, I was mortified. I was like, what is this like power inside of me? I have no control. Like, all I wanted to do was get laid. <laughs> and so he runs in. And he's like, we need to go to the hospital. And I'm like, yeah, let me just wipe this Game of Thrones episode off of me. <laughs> so I run into the bathroom and, and I jump into the shower. I'm just washing all this blood off of me. And I'm like, wow, this is what it looks like to a film psycho, only I'm the stabber. <laughs> and so, you know, I just, I take a moment, I take a little towel and I stand in the tiny hallway and I'm like, oh my God, what the fuck? I just need to like breathe for a second and then um I had this weird feeling like day two on your period where it's really heavy and you just feel like a chunk of it come out of you well I had that feeling and then he turns around he's like hey can you clean up the blood in the hallway and I look down and I'm bleeding his blood Someone else's blood is coming out of my body, which is something I do on a monthly basis. But when it's someone else's blood, it's just, it's just not as empowering. But anyways, so I, I have to find a pad and he's like, we need to go. And I'm like, I need to take care of myself too. So we find some semblance of clothing. I throw something on and we jump into a cab and we tell him where to go. And he's like, what the fuck? Like, how could this have happened? I was like, hey, 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 I have fucked men who are much bigger than you and with more aggression, and this has never happened before. Like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. And I was like, what about you? Did you not feel anything? And he's like, well, I felt a poke. I was like, a poke? A poke is like, hey, we're closing soon. It's time to wrap up. Hey, like... You should never feel something so hard in, like, the softest place. Like, what do you mean? A poke is like... And he was like, well, I, I wanted to, you know, finish. I was like, oh, my God. Men are single-celled organisms. Like, <laughs> they could be getting their dick sawed off. But the chance that they could come, oh, it's kind of worth it. <laughs> so I'm just like, what? The, so we get out of the... we. Get out of the cab. We tip the cab driver. 
And because he's got a lot to clean up. And. Hey folks, this is Kevin. Let me explain what happened at this particular point when Adrian was sharing the story that night in New York. One of the members of the audience sitting close to the stage fainted and it turned out fine. Uh, the audience was super, super helpful. We were able to, you know, get him some juice and get him up and had an EMT arrive to take him away and make double, triple sure he was totally okay. This is the third time someone has fainted at a Risk live show. I know one of the times, we don't know what it was all about, but two of the times there was blood in the stories and you know that's just the thing is the risk part of the risk of listening or attending the live shows is that if you're squeamish those bodily fluids they do have a way of showing up in stories because of the way that they show up in life so anyway uh, let's get back to the story you can hear how we handled it from there okay <laughs> Are we, is, is everything okay with them back there now? It looks like they're getting help back there now. Um, okay. <laughs> Should I go on? <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, we'll get that situation figured out. We're good, we're good, we're good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, God. Whew, there's nothing like scaring men. <laughs> So we go into the hospital. (laughs) Sending good vibes. Sending good vibes. So we get into the hospital. And we look like an odd couple because he's holding himself like a G. And my, I, I'm walking in bow-legged because I don't want my thighs to touch. And we get up to the receptionist and she's like, hi, how can I help you? And we explain the situation and she just kind of like casually writes us down like it's her third last rated penis of the day. And we sit down. And then finally the doctor comes in and takes us in and and he gets us all settled and he lays him down and the doctor leaves for a second and he reaches his hand out and I take it, but it just, it feels like an obligation. And I was kind of tired of cleaning up his mess. So the doctor comes in and, and he starts talking to me and he's like, let me just assess your relationship like you know how long have you been together like has this ever happened before and I was like oh he's not my boyfriend (laughs) no 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 he's not my boyfriend which is probably not what he wanted to hear at the time because I realized that the love that I was so craving from him would have to come from within Thank you so much.
hooking up with a girl late one night. Nothing too serious, but man, it felt nice. Except for a poke that I felt once or twice. And then suddenly, on came the lights. There was a gash. A serious penile gash. A penis gash. It made my life blood splash. A penis gash. Need medical help in a flash. A penis gash. Please fix my penis gash. Uh, it was my wedding night, July 25th, 1998, and I was really super excited to get back to the honeymoon suite, so I'm there with my wife, Colleen, and we open the door and we go in, and uh, she's 20, and I'm 21, and we're virgins. I know. So we're like really don't have a clue what the fuck to do at all. Like, so are, are, do we take each other's clothes off? I mean, uh, how does this work? Like, do I help you with the buttons? Or are you supposed to do something with my zipper? Uh, and I'm just sitting there. And I'm just, uh, no idea what to do. But one thing was really apparent, and that was that I was painfully aroused. I don't know like how we ended up getting naked, but we got naked. I don't know how we got in bed, but we got in bed. And I'm just leading with my hips. My dick's like some sort of divining rod looking for water. And we're very Christian, so I'm just like, Holy Ghost is going to guide it in. But it hits a wall. Like, nothing was open. And I'm applying pressure. I'm like, I'm pretty sure it goes there. So, like, now I'm, like, pulling the covers back, and I'm looking, and I'm pushing, and it's starting to hurt, and, like, my dick's starting to bend, and I'm like, and I feel her shudder. And she goes, (gasps) and I look up, and she's crying. And I immediately retreat, and I'm like, oh, my God, I'm hurting my wife. And I look at her, and she looks at me, and there's tears in her eyes. And I just say, well, it's been a really long day. So I roll over, and we turn out the lights, and I listen to her cry herself to sleep. And I'm lying there awake, quite literally pitching a tent, I do not think that this is how this was supposed to go. Like, I'm pretty sure, like, we lived the life, like, we were really wholesome and, and true and Christian. Like, we waited to have sex until our wedding night, because it makes it special. Or at least that's what I told all my friends when they were like, dude, you're going to, like, buy a car without taking the test drive, man. And I was just like, 
But I'm lying there, and I'm just doing what I'd done when I'd got boners that wouldn't go away. I was just like, well, I'm just going to pray until it goes away. Because <laughs> like, even then, I was like, shameful about like even touching myself and I was just like praying and finally subsides and like it's time I could finally fall asleep and I just think well there's always tomorrow seven years later I showed up at my buddy Joe's house I just walk in the door and fucking throw it aside and I'm like Joe I feel like I'm gonna fucking snap and I sit down on his couch. He's like, all right, well, hold on a second. So he goes in the kitchen, comes back with two beers. He opens his, I open mine, I down mine. And he's like, okay, well, what, what's going on? I was like, I have to tell somebody. It's like, what? What's going on? I'm coming up on my 28th birthday and my seven-year wedding anniversary, and I'm still a virgin. I've never had sex, and I'm fucking losing it. And he said, I know. He said, like, are you fucking serious, man? Like, I mean, come on, you had to do something. Like, like never? I mean, like, you're putting me on. I was like, no, never. He's like, not even, like, never. Nothing? Nothing. Well, what happens? Well, we try, and it's like, she closes up, and like nothing can go in, like not even a pinky. And he said to me, he was just like, uh, well, have you guys told anybody about this? <laughs> no, nobody. And he said, well, have you ever looked it up online? <laughs> I was like, Fuck. We didn't have the internet when we got married. That wasn't a thing. I mean, and then we got the internet after we were married, but it was primarily like for the porn. Um, I mean, I made my peace with jerking off by then. Uh, just, uh, but uh, he's like, no, fuck it. I didn't even ever, ever think to do that. And he's like, well, what are your conversations with her like? He's like, well, I say, claim. I really think that we should talk to somebody about this. Can you please just, can you tell your sister or talk to your mom or your doctor? Maybe they had something like this. Maybe, maybe this has been something before. And she would look at me again and her eyes would kind of well up with tears. And she's like, this is private. So, I mean, we did a lot of praying, but like it never got better. He's like, so wait a second. You've never told anybody and you've been just, Dealing with this all by yourself? Like, yeah. It's like, oh, well, I guess that makes kind of sense. It's like, you've been changing. Yeah, I was reminded me of like some conversations I had with my mom when I'd visit, where she'd be like, Tyson, you don't seem to go to church anymore. Tyson, why is it you always like seem to be drinking now? Tyson, why don't you stay home at night with your wife? You're going to ruin your relationship staying out all night with your friends. I was like, Mom, I'm fine. But then I would be driving home from her house, and I'd be like, what the fuck am I supposed to say? Like, no, I can't fuck my wife. I can't fucking tell anybody about it. And I'm going to... 
What am I supposed to fucking do? Like, yeah, my faith is fucking crumbling, and I'm really fucking depressed, and I'm super fucking angry all the goddamn time. And you don't want me to drink, but guess what? Drink makes me feel real fucking good for at least a minute. Oh, stay home with your wife. Great. I can sit there and stare at this person that I love and want to really fucking be with, but can't. So now I'm going to go out with my friends. If you want me to stay home, give me a reason to stay home. So we Google it. (laughs) And it turns out there's a name for what this is. It's called vaginismus. It is a well-documented disorder that is an involuntary tightening of the vaginal walls. Sometimes they know what it's caused and sometimes they don't, but like the commonalities are like really super painful sex if it can happen at all. And in its worst cases, is that completely shuts and nothing can go in. We're in that latter group. But I did say on the website, there's treatment. It usually takes two to three months. Just have to go talk to the right people, doctors and therapists. There's a treatment plan, so should we follow the treatment plan? And in like three months, we get to the day where it's like, we think we can do it. So we're going to have sex, finally. I'm 28. I'm going to lose my virginity. I'm like super excited because this is going to correct all my problems, obviously. (laughs) So this is how we have sex because, you know, it had gotten better. This is how. I had to lie perfectly still and maintain an erection while my wife tried to mount me and slowly work me inside of her. And if I would move or feel like in the moment, it would cause her harm, and we would have to start over. So millimeter by millimeter, she would have to lower herself down upon me, and I'd get to look at her, grimacing in pain. Sometimes it would take like four or five or six minutes just to get all the way down and then rest before we can try to like carry on and the whole time I'm supposed to slide there and like maintain an erection so yeah the new improved sex was fucking awesome it was a traumatic chore we've been married for seven years over the next three we probably had sex maybe 30 times in 10 years coming up on our 10 year wedding anniversary And by this time, it's getting a little bit better. We can manage to, like, navigate that awkward first part in about two minutes or three minutes. It's getting a little bit better. And, hey, let's start a family. So we have unprotected sex once. And while the sexual details were difficult, like, the functional reproduction, that worked fine. So she got pregnant right away and... So then we weren't really having sex again. And then she gave birth, and she got injured. Because that happens to a lot of women, right? You tear, and it hurts, and then you have to go through a healing period. Now add that to this situation. So it's several months after giving birth. I've got this child, and I'm like, do you think we can try it again? And it hits a wall again, and we're fucking back at square one again. And this whole time, I'm like, 
fucking enraged. So like, I just wanted to have like, fucking God damn it. I just wanted to have one time where I could just be passionate with the woman I loved and have that like, oh, we're really into each other. We're drunk off of our love and we can just experience every little thing. And in the back of my mind, I'm fucking pissed off and I'm just like, it took three months of treatment to get there, but it took seven years to get to the three months, three months, seven years. What the fuck? Fucking losing it again. So we're back to square one. I'm like, all right, so start the treatment again. Then the treatment's harder this time because it hurts more. So I'm working and I'm at my job and we have an outing for work and we're out drinking and there's a young intern there and we're alone and I'm looking at her and she looks at me and she says, I've always really wanted your attention. It's like, oh, somebody wants my attention. So in that moment, I just took all my fucking principles and my faith and everything about the person I was. I just like, fucking throw it out the window. It's just, so I cheated on my wife. And then I cheated again, like, the next day. And then I was like, this isn't going to stop. So it was like two or three weeks, maybe four, I don't know. I went up to my wife. I said, look, I know in all of our conversations, I had always said, We'll never get a divorce. Divorce is a sin. I'm never going to do it. But we may live separate lives, but I'll never leave you. I know I assured you this countless times in our conversations. And when we would have these conversations, me being upset about things, I would always say, never going to leave you. I think she only ever heard, I'm never going to leave you. She never heard the other parts. But when I said, I need a divorce, her best friend who she trusted just fucking destroyed her world. We had an 11th month old, not even a year old yet. I'm leaving. I felt like I was fucking cursed. It wasn't until years later, after a debacle of other things and a divorce, and when I finally went and got some therapy, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm depressed and I have problems. And it wasn't until then that, like, I realized something. Like, this whole fucking time, I was blaming my wife. I'm like, why don't you get help? Why don't you talk to somebody? You know what I could have done? I could have just gone and talked to somebody and be like, hey, I don't know what the fuck's going on. I don't know if I'm doing it wrong or whatever, but I know that I'm really upset all the time. But I didn't do it. See, when it comes to vaginismus, like, I thought I was the victim. No, she was the victim. I was just collateral damage. I just blamed her and put it all on her. But we have this child, this wonderful person, and she's a delight. She's a delight to everyone. And we're raising this child together, and we're good co-parents. And the guiding light in the way we raise our child is to like try and ensure that, like, hey, guess what? Questions are all right. Ask questions. And you know what? If you have problems, guess what? You're never alone in your problem. There's always going to be somebody who's going to have a problem like you do. It's okay. Talk to somebody. So like while I went all through that and I did learn some things, and I guess the moral of this story is like Google things. (laughs) Thank you.
This is Risk. This is Lovelake behind me now. I'll tell you, we first had them on the show in 2010, way back in the early days. And they just emailed me today to say, hey, we have a new album out. Maybe you'll like this song as well. And I fell in love with it right away. Men in Nature is the name of their new album. Also sounds like some of the stories I've told on Risk. Now, before that, we heard from Tyson Robert. That was a remarkable story that was shared at our Milwaukee show just several weeks ago. And before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. That song that he created, uh, you know, a version of the Monster Mash. Jeff, that's Jeff singing. That is Jeff singing and howling and moaning and crying. So that is what our episode editor sounds like when he's imitating Bobby Pickett, imitating Boris Karloff. Our final story on this week's episode comes from our recent show that we did in Indianapolis. This is Suzanne Binford, who you can find on Twitter at Sue Binford. That's S-U Binford. And here she is now with a story we call Butterfly. so excited about this. I even shaved my legs. <laughs> so I make amazing kids. It's my thing. Some people cook, some people sew. I make good people. When I was pregnant at 40, I already had two older children. I had Tori, who was 14, every second of 14. Killer eye roll, wicked sense of humor, well-developed smart-ass gene, And then I also had a son, Liam, who was 10, and he was just this little ball of energy, never met a stranger, and just this really sweet soul. And so my husband and I were were ready to give the world a third amazing kid. I felt like with my experience already being a mom and my perspective, I really expected that this was probably going to be a pretty good one. And the thing that I didn't expect was that I miscarried at six weeks. And I wasn't terribly discouraged at that time, so I got pregnant right away. Five weeks later, I miscarried again. And that's when I I thought, okay, well, I just need to give my body a, a little break and recover from it. And so three months later, I got pregnant again. And that one lasted a little bit longer. It wasn't until seven weeks that I miscarried. And that's when I really started to get discouraged. I had had two really healthy pregnancies, so I didn't understand why my body wasn't doing this for me. So we waited a few more months and decided to try again. Five weeks came, six weeks came, seven weeks came, and everything was fine. And so at 12 weeks, we weren't quite past the first trimester, but we really felt like we were really safe. So we told the kids, and Tori, the one with the well-developed smart-ass gene, 
says, you know, Mom, everybody's going to think that's my kid you're raising. And and my son was like, yeah, I'm not going to be the baby anymore. So he was really excited about it, too. And we called our parents. And so we were starting to make plans. But two days later, I miscarried again. And that was when I just really felt like maybe I was done with this. You know, we'd tried. For those of you keeping count, that's four miscarriages. And I'd been pregnant for a year. And I was mentally exhausted. And I was physically exhausted. And I was tired of the hormone fluctuation. And I just really didn't think that I could do it anymore. But six months later, we decided to go ahead and give it one more shot. And clearly, I'm fertile. I did get pregnant right away. (laughs) And we really waited. We waited till the first trimester was done. We had an ultrasound at 14 weeks. We could see this little baby in there who was developing this really strong, strong heartbeat. And so we felt a little safer. We were cautious, but my clothes were starting to get tight, so we felt like it was probably time to start telling people. So, of course, Tori and Liam is who we told first, and they were super excited. Tori was 16 at that time, so she wanted to make sure we had a car seat in her car for the baby, and Liam wanted to know if he could stay up late nights with the baby. <laughs> when the baby woke up and I was a-okay with that. So we really started making plans and we found out it was a girl. So we picked a name. Her name was going to be Bryn. It was four letters. That's why we chose it. Tori's four letters, Liam's four letters, Bryn's four letters. So plans were really going on. We picked a theme because you have to have a theme for a nursery, right? So butterflies was our theme for the nursery, blue butterflies specifically. So Liam was helping me put the nursery furniture together, and Tori was helping my mom sew the butterfly blanket and the butterfly pillows for the room, and we were really, really starting to get excited. It had been a long time since there had been a baby in the house, so I was kind of prepping myself for that, too. And I think it was about seven months along, I was standing in the kitchen with the kids telling them stories about when they were little, like, love those stories. We were kind of giggling about whether Bryn would be giving us some stories like that too. Liam used to lean against my leg and he'd look up at me with his little face and go, I want to hold you because he wanted me to pick him up. So we were talking about that. Or There was also the time that Tori, oh, this child, she was listening to an audiobook with my mom and there was a character in the story who called another character stupid and she said, Grammy, that's a bad word. Mommy says it's a terrible word. We shouldn't say it. It makes people feel bad. And my mom was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We really shouldn't call people stupid. So Tori sat for a second and she goes, but shit's okay. <laughs> so... So we were talking about those stories and wondering what kind of stories Bryn would be giving us. And then Tori got kind of quiet. And she looked over at me and she rubbed my belly. I was pretty big at that time. And she said, Mom, I'm going to miss out on all the good stuff. She only had a year left of high school and she was going to be going off to college shortly after Bryn's first birthday. And she was so sad that she wasn't going to be there. So I assured her that 
she wasn't going to be too far away. So we, of course, have lots of visits and send lots of videos. And she was absolutely going to be present. We weren't going to leave her out of this. So she, I think she felt okay with that. And so nine months, for those of you who have been pregnant, it feels about like three and a half years. Nine months pregnant, Tori and Liam, my husband, they're having daily talks with Bren, trying to coax her out. I'm having my own private pep talks with her. We were ready for this. It was one late night. I'd been in her nursery kind of prepping stuff, and I went to bed probably around midnight. It was late. I remember being really exhausted. And I laid down. I could feel her shifting around in there, and I kind of rubbed the sides of my belly to get her to settle down. And then we drifted off to sleep. And when I woke up the next morning, she was really still. And sometimes it took her a while to wake up. So I kind of rubbed the sides of my belly, and that wouldn't work. And she was usually very active when I was in the shower. So I hopped in the shower, and it was still really still. So I thought maybe a shot of sugar. So I tried some orange juice, and that didn't work either. And so I called the doctor, and the doctor said to go to the hospital. So we got to the hospital and walked into labor and delivery, and the nurses do the thing that nurses do. You know, the we're sure everything's okay, but what they don't know about me is I'm not a worrier. I don't worry about that kind of stuff. I'm not the one who runs to the hospital at every little pang or every little twitch. I'm worried. And so they take us into a room, and they pull out the ultrasound machine, and they squirt the little goo on the wand, and they make several sweeps over my belly looking for what Bryn's doing in there. And then the nurse excuses herself, and she goes to get the doctor. And the doctor comes in, and she makes those same sweeps over my belly. And I knew when she was digging that wand into my ribs, and it, it was slightly painful. And I knew what she was going to say before she said it. And she could barely look me in the face when she said, I'm sorry, there's no heartbeat. And so she gave us our options of what to do. We could go home and wait for labor to start. They could induce labor. They could do a cesarean section. And she said, I'll leave you to decide I know you've got some really heavy decisions to make. And so she walked out of the room, and it was so silent in that room. It was like this super loud silence. And my husband and I kind of talked about our decisions, what we needed to do, and then it just, all these realizations came flying at me that I was going to have to give birth to this little girl and I wasn't going to get to take her home. And my body was going to think that I was going to have a baby, so I was still going to make milk and I was still going to have the hormone fluctuations and I was still going to have the baby blues and I didn't know if I could do it. I knew how to do late nights. I knew how to do diaper blowouts, and I knew how to do sore nipples, and I knew how to do teenage attitude, but I had no idea how to do this, and I had no idea how to get my kids through this, and so we t- we talked through our, our options, and we decided to go with our original birth plan, 
which was to get our doula in there and an unmedicated birth because it was the small amount of control that we had in the situation. So my husband went home to shower and we decided he was going to tell the kids. And I called my doula and she showed up like a freaking champ with her bag of doula tricks and love. And it was summertime. She brought a bowl of peaches And then my husband brought the kids to me and they came into the room and they were so quiet. They just shuffled in and they were crying and they ran over to me and I just hugged them. And then they waited outside while I labored and it was 14 hours. And in that 14 hours, there was this moment that I really, really hoped that when she came out, she would still be okay, that she would scream her little lungs out, and everything that I'd been experiencing up until that point was just going to be a dream. But it didn't happen that way. And when she was born, it was the quietest birthing room you can imagine. It was just so fucking quiet. And she was so beautiful. Her dark curly hair. And she had these long limbs, long arms and long legs, and her cute little toes. She was so precious. And we got two days with her. We got to spend two days with her, and so Tori and Liam and my husband and I all stayed in the same hospital room, and parents and my sister came in and out, and they visited, and we all held her for two days. We just took turns. Nobody slept. Nobody wanted to lose a minute. We just held her and just stared at her and soaked in every little detail because these were the only moments we were going to get with her. And then I had to leave. And that was the thing that changed me. I got to hold her for two days, but now I had to give her up. And I cannot tell you the pain that I felt when I had to lay her in the hospital bassinet It was incredible. It was just like this big, gaping hole in my soul. The French have a saying, when they miss someone, it's tu me manques, and it means you are missing from me, and that's what it felt like. Like this big piece of me had just been ripped out and put in that hospital bassinet, and That was the hardest thing that I had to do, is leave her there and go home without her. And I didn't know what to do with myself. I just felt like this empty shell of a person walking around. I used to stand in her room, and it was full of all of her furniture and all of the butterflies, but it was so empty and I felt so empty. And, and somewhere along the way, the butterflies gained a meaning for me. They symbolized change. 
caterpillars grow wings and become butterflies, and they fly away, and so did my little girl. She wasn't going to be there anymore. But that gave us something to keep with us, was the butterflies. So we have butterflies all over the house. And that's become a thing for us, a symbol for Bryn, for us. We celebrate her. We celebrate her birthday. We hang a stocking at Christmas time. And we love her, and we miss her. And Tori did go to college. And she was there probably three or four weeks when I got a text from her, and she had been walking to class and saw a blue butterfly And she sent me a picture of it on her way to class. And that just uh, hit me right, right in the gut. But it was just so sweet. On Mother's Day, the first Mother's Day after Tori had been at school, she bought flowers and she wrote on the card, Happy Mother's Day, Mommy. I love you. Love, Bryn. So... The kids have kept Bren very present with us, too. One in four women experience infant loss, but we don't talk about it very much. Not to prepare, because you can never prepare for anything like that, but for those of us who do experience it, it's been the secret. Like, they used to not even let parents see their children after they had them. I had a friend who also experienced the loss of a baby, and she never got to see her son, never got to see him. And there's people who don't even know they had siblings, and I just can't do that. I can't imagine that. I've got three children, Tori, Liam, and Bren. Tori and Liam have a beautiful little sister, and we miss our little butterfly baby. And we want to love her out loud. We don't want to love her in secret. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Alabama Shakes behind me now, and we just heard from Suzanne Binford. Don't forget to pick up the Risk book. Go order the Risk book on Amazon and get copies for your friends as well. And become a part of our Patreon community. You can get extra, you know, our Ask Me Anythings or our check-ins, our bonus stories. There's lots of extra content at patreon.com slash risk. And look us up at thestorystudio.org where we teach storytelling for all kinds of occasions, including corporate storytelling workshops that we do. That is all at thestorystudio.org. 
Also, you can always find information about where Risk is appearing live next at risk-show.com slash tour. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Hey, if I wanted to, I'd be He shouts from the bathroom, your copper IUD.